So this evening, I'm going to be talking about infections uh, in the brain. Uh, and the reason I'm talking about that is that they are widely feared, rightly feared, because when they cause problems, they can cause very severe uh, problems. But also, I'm glad to say, in many cases, in retreat, as we shall go through. The reason uh, it is so important to consider infections in the brain is that the brain is, of course, uh, our most important and undoubtedly our most complex organ. Everything you do, your thoughts, your actions, your sensations, your emotions, all come from the brain. So anything which damages the brain can have long and uh, very serious impacts on you for the rest of your life. And the brain is therefore protected from infection by multiple layers. Some of them are layers of the immune system uh, before you get near the brain, but there are also some physical layers around the brain, uh, which are broadly termed the meninges. And these are important uh, for three reasons. The first one is they provide a physical barrier to many infections getting into the brain that get into the rest of the body. But, and there's a downside to this, they also provide a physical barrier to drugs used to treat infections getting into the brain as well. So there is a, there is a flip side to that. And the third reason they're important is inflammation of this tissue, the meninges, is what's what causes meningitis, uh, which is one of the major brain uh, infection types. Now, the brain, uh, as you will know, is highly specialised. The only way it can do all the very many things it does uh, in you at all times is to do parallel processing. Lots of different bits of the brain are very highly specialised. So some infections will infect, affect the whole brain. Other infections will affect very localised bits of the brain and may then cause a very specific part of damage, leaving the rest of the brain untouched. So the degree of specialisation can lead to very different outcomes. And I've illustrated this here, for example, uh, with the fact that uh, you have one strip of the brain deals with your motor system, actually commands your body how to move, uh, and next door to it, a strip completely uh, devoted to uh, sensation. And even within that, there will be highly specialised areas uh, which control things like the hands, uh, the mouth, uh, or the tongue. Now, the brain is affected by very many infections. I'm not going to go through all of them, very obviously, but I'm going to try and deliberately go through a wide sweep so you can see the direction of travel on infections of the brain uh, we have at the moment. And this talk is going to consider meningitis, uh, encephalitis, parasitic infections of various sorts of the brain, localised infections, which can cause a rather different presentation, uh, and then the general infection effects of infections on the brain, particularly in older people, because these are broadly the groups which tend to cause significant problems. Let's start off uh, because historically and in many areas still, it is the most important with meningitis. And I think almost everybody in this audience will know the symptoms of meningitis because they are ones that people rightly fear and rightly are told about in education and uh, by their doctors uh, and by their parents. Headache, uh, obviously common. Neck stiffness, where people really find it incredibly difficult to move their neck. Uh, aversion to light, photophobia uh, is the term for it, and fever are the classic things which, call, which uh, point to meningitis. People can have meningitis who don't have all of these, but most people who have a severe case of meningitis will have most or all of them. And the diagnosis uh, is still, by a very old-fashioned uh, method, really, lumbar puncture. And lumbar puncture is where you take a needle and you pass it through the bones, between the bones in the back, into the spinal cord area where the fluid that washes the brain is also in the spinal cord. And there you can actually see what is happening uh, in that fluid, in what's called the CSF. I want to stress, although I'll mainly be talking about how we've controlled disease, that many cases of meningitis have a very good outlook. So people who have a viral meningitis, which I'll come on to, almost invariably make a full recovery. And people who have a bacterial meningitis, provided it is identified early, 
can usually be treated uh, and have no or very, li very limited long-term problems. So these are either not always severe or treatable diseases. Nevertheless, they are always potentially extremely dangerous and potentially can leave people, even if they survive, with long-term neurological problems. When you do a lumbar puncture, uh, the first thing you may see if you're doing it, and you may see this in, in relatives, hopefully not uh, uh, in, in any close relatives, uh, is actually the, uh, the, the fluid that comes out, which normally would look as clear as water, can actually look like pus. If you do that, you do not even need to see uh, what happens under the microscope. That tells you this person has got meningitis. More commonly, however, what people need to do is look under a microscope. Again, old-fashioned medicine. This has not been done really differently to what would have been done 50 years ago. And under a microscope, in general, with meningitis, you either see these purple uh, multi-loculated uh, uh, cells. These are called neutrophils. And this tells you this person has got a bacterial meningitis. Or you see these single dot cells, lymphocytes, and these tell you that they've got viral meningitis or possibly TB meningitis or fungal meningitis. So quickly looking down the microscope will usually tell you broadly what you're dealing with. This is not something, this is something you could teach a bright 12-year-old to do uh, once you've actually done the preparation. And then sometimes you can use relatively old-fashioned methods to actually make the diagnosis straight away by seeing the organism that's causing the problem. And I've given an example here. This is a fungal meningitis, something called cryptococcal meningitis. And what, is, they've done, what people have done in this is they've simply put in a drop of old-fashioned India ink. And the ink causes the area to be brown. And because there's a capsule around the, uh, um, the yeast cells that cause this, uh, that leads to a halo around it, and you can very clearly see these organisms. So sometimes you can make a diagnosis straight away just by looking down a microscope. Now, there are three very common, historically, uh, causes of bacterial meningitis. And I think what I want to say straight off is we are making extremely good progress against all three of them. Let me start off with meningococcus, meningococcal meningitis, something which people are rightly very afraid of. It's carried by around 10% of adults in their nose and throat. So if you look around the population, some of you will have this in the back of your throats. This is a common bug uh, for a lot of people just to carry. And for most people, it causes no problems at any point in their life. But it can cause a very aggressive meningitis, it can also cause a form of septicemia, which causes a very unpleasant rash. This uh, child's family uh, wanted uh, their child to be seen so people could understand this. And uh, what happens then is there can be a very rapid onset. So a child can be playing perfectly happily in the morning and be intensive, in intensive care by the afternoon. This can happen extraordinarily quickly. And untreated, this has a mortality of around 50%. So this is a very serious infection indeed. It is fortunately sensitive to antibiotics, but that does depend of the, on them being got, uh, got into people at a very early stage. So the first general public health point is, if you see someone who might have an aggressive meningitis, they need to see a doctor absolutely immediately. Now, there are several different sorts of meningococcus. Uh, a, B, C, W, X, Y uh, are the rather unoriginal names for these. Uh, which of these uh, are the most important varies both by age, different ones come at different ages, and by geography. So different ones are more important in different countries. And this has got big practical implications. But for all of these now, there are effective vaccinations available. I'm going to start off with the one that's most globally important, and this is meningococcus A. This causes massive epidemics, or at least historically until very recently, caused massive epidemics in many places, but particularly uh, in the Sahel area uh, of Africa. Uh, and if you take, for example, the last really massive epidemic uh, in 1996, there were over 250,000 cases occurred in this epidemic wave. This is a very, very serious epidemic by any standards. 
Because we now have a good vaccine against meningococcus A, which is now being widely deployed, outbreaks have been virtually eliminated. That doesn't mean the infection has gone away completely, but these big outbreaks are no longer occurring. And after this vaccine was introduced, there was around a 70% decline in, meningi in men uh, meningitis uh, in this region. That's in the last few years. That's an astonishing public health achievement. There still are some outbreaks in this area of mening meningococcus C and W, including one major outbreak that was imported following a, a pilgrim going, coming back from the Hajj, uh, so demonstrating the risk of going to crowded areas. Uh, but this is a problem which, whilst not gone, is a shadow of what it was just a decade ago. Looking at Europe, the USA, uh, and obviously the UK, a different form of meningococcus is the most important, or two important ones, uh, meningococcus B and C, and more recently, uh, W. And again, the headline numbers are extremely encouraging. Uh, we've had a reduction in invasive meningococcal disease from over 2,500 cases uh, when we were at the turn of the century uh, to around 755 last year. And most of these are children under the age of five. There's a smaller peak in teenagers. Uh, this, has been this has largely been produced by uh, an introduction of meningococcus C vaccine, which was introduced in 2000, and it reduced meningococcus C by about 95% in children. And then since 2015, so this is just three years ago, uh, the children in uh, infants in England have been offered meningococcus B vaccines, because most cases, as I'll just show you, are in children under the age of one, so highly concentrated in this group. And since 2015 also, teenagers have been offered meningococcus A, C, W uh, and Y because there is a risk of those infections in the teenage population. And this is the age distribution. This is the reason why these are the ages that are chosen. These are all the uh, cases of meningococcus uh, and the black ones are meningococcus type B, uh, and the blue ones are meningococcus type uh, C. And what you can see in the UK is, over time, meningococcus type C, due to vaccination, has essentially disappeared. And I would expect the same thing largely to occur with meningococcus type B over the next few years as a result of the vaccine programme that has just begun. And then you have the ACWY vaccine to deal with this peak, in teenagers later on. So meningococcus, we are getting on top of extremely effectively with vaccination. In children, the other major meningococcal bacterial infection used to be, when I was a medical student and a junior doctor, uh, something called Haemophilus influenzae. This is not the same as influenza the virus. This is a bacterial infection. And it was the commonest cause in children under the age of four. One in 20 of them died, and one in five who survived were left, left with serious neurological disability. Again, a very serious infection. Hib vaccine, vaccine against this, was introduced in the UK and Ireland in 1992 and almost immediately reduced the incidence by more than 90%. And this is a graph of what happened when the Hib vaccine was introduced. Basically, it fell off a cliff, and then there was a catch-up vaccination campaign needed uh, slightly later on. So in 1991, uh, there were around uh, just over 700 cases of meningococcal, uh, sorry, of hip, uh, infection. Uh, last year, there were only two. So this disease is not completely gone, but it has been very largely reduced, and it also reduces carriage, which means that children, even who are not vaccinated, are protected by those around them. And if you look globally, following on from what happened in the US, UK and Northern Europe, so if you look at uh, 1996, only those countries actually had significant amounts of vaccination protection. If you look uh, in the last year for which we have data, 2016, very many countries in uh, Latin America, Africa, Europe and increasingly Asia now have protection with this highly effective vaccine. So this infection is basically on its way out due to vaccination. If this sounds, this whole talk sounds like a hymn to the extraordinary power of vaccination to defeat dangerous diseases, it is. Moving on to pneumococcal meningitis. 
This is the third of the large, the big three bacterial uh, men uh, meningitides. And this occurs almost entirely in young children under the age of two and those over the age of 65. It's carried in the throats of many adults and over half of preschool children. So this is, again, a common bacteria. Lots of people carry it. But it only causes severe disease, which can include menin cause meningitis, but it also can cause pneumonia, septicemia, a variety of other things. Uh, uh, it can cause a number of uh, diseases, but uh, it only causes this in a min minority. There's a very high mortality for pneumococcal meningitis, and around one in five survivors will go on to have significant neurological disability. Again, this is a serious infection. We now have routine immunisation for the 13 most common strains in infants. And we also have vaccines for the over 65s, which are slightly different. And what's happened as a result of that is this is every year over time, and the solid lines along the bottom are the, uh, the strains that are presented by, prevented by vaccination and what has happened over time. And essentially, these strains, the most common strains in pneumococcus, have largely disappeared as invasive disease. There are still some strains in pneumococcus which are circulating, which are not covered by the 13-valent vaccine that we have, and therefore there is still some disease that's circulating. But that is, uh, the overall burden has really substantially reduced. So again, a remarkable impact from vaccination. There are then uh, a number of very rare or fairly rare uh, meningitis, and one of them in particular deserves talking about. This is this thing, Group B Streptococcus, GBS. Uh, this is the main cause of meningitis in newborns in the UK and indeed in most uh, higher income countries. The numbers are very small, but each of the cases is clearly absolutely tragic. And this does present a very significant public health uh, conundrum. <coughs> because we know that 20 to 30% of pregnant women will carry this bacteria on them when they're pregnant and could potentially infect their children. Over 99% of children born to mothers who are infected will not go in on to get meningococcus. And the question, therefore, is should we be screening all pregnant women and giving a third of women in pregnancy antibiotics <coughs> with a number of significant downsides, particularly antibiotic-resistant infections, or should we be accepting that this, is, this very small number is probably, on balance, actually less harmful than that approach? And this is a very live debate uh, in public health and in uh, obstetrics at the moment. The argument is really quite finely balanced. What we really need for this is clearly a vaccine. And I think a vaccine at this point, I'm afraid, is probably more than five years away. And then there are a number of really very rare uh, infections. Listeria infection, now very rare, used to be much more common. Uh, if you're pregnant and you eat these cheeses, uh, you'll be very pleased, but your baby may not be, and you may get meningitis. So avoid unpasteurized infection, uh, cheeses in pregnancy. And uh, there is a very rare salmonella one, uh, which is largely caught from people's pet reptiles. The last uh, case I came across was from a pet water dragon. They look very cute, uh, very occasionally. They're dangerous, including, uh, obviously, to humans as well as to slugs. TB meningitis is the most serious form of tuberculosis. And in wealthier countries, this is now incredibly rare. When the NHS was founded 70 years ago, there were about 2,000 cases of TB meningitis a year, and they were mainly, they were mainly transmitted in the country. Uh, and England and Wales are now around 100 a, a year. That's a roughly 2% of TB uh, overall. Children under four and HIV-positive uh, adults are most at risk uh, in most settings. Uh, in a high-income setting, BCG vaccination provides around 75% protect protection against meningitis. So it protects much less against lung disease, but it protects against meningitis, but unfortunately is less effective in low-income countries. And it is in low-income countries where the burden of TB is most uh, at, at risk. And so there is still TB meningitis. This is one of the ones where we have still got some way to go. Uh, and it is concentrated in particular in areas where there is a large amount of HIV. But the other big threat is drug resistance. Multidrug resistant TB is a spreading problem, particularly in Eastern Europe. 
And I've mentioned HIV. HIV makes multiple forms of, of uh, meningitis a lot more common. Uh, TB, uh, pneumococcal, certainly two of them. But the third group that it makes much more common is a very unpleasant uh, infection, cryptococcal meningitis, which is a fungal meningitis. And the reason that uh, this used to be massively feared is people would get this, they would get incredibly severe headaches, would survive for roughly three months, feeling incredibly unwell, up to three months, and then they would die. But the last few months of their life were very unpleasant. Uh, that was in before we had effective anti-HIV drugs. Now we've got those, this problem has largely disappeared. If you treat people with anti-HIV drugs and you treat the, 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 uh, the uh, meningitis, this problem will go away. And finally, uh, on the main section on meningitis, viral meningitis. Uh, as I said at the beginning, this is generally mild, it usually lasts less than 14 days. So when you say to someone you've got meningitis, they look at you as if they're about to die. If it's viral meningitis, the risk of that are very low indeed. Uh, and generally, there are no neurological after effects. Not absolutely always. There's no treatment for these. Viruses uh, are not uh, treatable by drugs. Um, the rates have gone down quite a bit because it used to be that around one in four of these cases was due to mumps. And now with MMR vaccination, uh, that has largely disappeared. Uh, and there were also some cases due to measles. Those also have gone down with MMR. But several other viruses can cause it, uh, and then mainly the gut viruses in particular of childhood. Other things can as well. So that is meningitis. Broadly, an incredibly encouraging picture. Less encouraging is encephalitis. Encephalitis is not inflammation of the surroundings of the brain. This is inflammation of the brain itself, this white area out here. And several, several common infections can rarely cause encephalitis, but when they do, it's usually very serious. There are around four to 6,000 cases a, a year in the UK. Uh, that would be fairly typical for high-income countries. And where we know what causes it, the common causes are herpes simplex, that's the cold sore virus that most people have at some point in their lives, uh, which can, uh, for reasons that are not really clear, sometimes invade the brain, chickenpox virus, uh, and measles and rubella, German measles, in people who are not vaccinated, and then a variety of much uh, less common causes, at least in this country. But this is a serious condition which can leave people with very significant long-term disability. Start off with the most common of them, herpes simplex encephalitis, for which we do not currently have a uh, vaccine. Um, it, of those identified, it's around 20% of the cases in the UK, but actually a lot of encephalitis, we never know what causes it. To be clear, this is actually very rare. And so the numbers are around uh, 0.3 per 100,000 of the population a year. This is not something you or your friends are likely to get, but clearly there is always a risk. Typically, it affects this bit of the brain here, which is an area involved in the processing in particular of speech and uh, sensation uh, and uh, orientation. And what you tend to get is flu-like symptoms, and then very different from meningitis. People think they're the same thing. They're very different. People get drowsiness and unconsciousness. They may or may not uh, get a headache, confusion, difficulty in communicating, and then go on to have fitting. So very different. They have epilepsy of different sorts. Since there's no vaccine, we have to really rely on treatment. And fortunately for this form of encephalitis, for those who are treated early, there is a fairly effective drug called acyclovir. If you start it in the first 48 hours, then it reduces mortality from around 70% uh, to around to less than 20%. So this can be very effective, but several of those people will be left with significant long-term neurological damage. So this is not something which... Uh, is, is trivial, even with treatment. Much more depressingly is we still have cases of measles and encephalitis. And the reason I say depressingly is this is almost entirely preventable. And I will just give you starkly the numbers in a high-income setting. In a low-income setting, up to 10% of children with measles will die from it. One in three, children, one in three to in a 1,000 children will develop encephalitis during their measles episode, and 10 to 15% of those will die, and a further 25% of those will have long-term neurological damage, which affects them for the rest of their lives. 
One in a thousand children with measles will develop a post-infectious encephalitis, so they get through the measles and then they get encephalitis. And one in 25,000 children will develop subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, a severe encephalitis they get many years, sometimes many years later. This is a non-trivial infection. Compare that to less than two in a million children who will develop encephalitis after vaccination. And I will just leave up. This is a letter that Roald Dahl uh, wrote uh, to all parents after the death of one of his children from measles encephalitis. And I'm not going to read it out. I think people can read it on the screen. While she was alive, he dedicated James, James and the Giant Peach to, to her. After she was dead, uh, she, he uh, dedicated uh, the big, big friendly giant to her, to, to uh, uh, books that most children know very well. I think that letter is worth showing to people who like to claim that we should not be giving MMR vaccination to children, which I consider is one of the stupidest things uh, currently said in the popular press. So moving on from uh, encephalitis, which in a sense is an accidental uh, uh, issue where the infection uh, infects, but probably not as part of its deliberate strategy in evolutionary terms, to one where it definitely does, rabies. Rabies is an absolutely horrible disease. Having seen many infectious diseases, I can say without any hesitation that rabies is the one that I would least like to die from. Around 99% of human cases come from dog bites globally, uh, and it's still really quite common, so uh, just under 60,000 cases a year, according to the World Health Organization. Where it's controlled in dogs, there is a little bit of reservoir in bats, but the, this is much smaller, but that is a bit of an issue uh, in the Americas, but that's only really noticeable once it's controlled in dog, uh, dog populations. If you get rabies with symptoms, you'll die within 10 days of those symptoms, but you will feel appallingly terrified for those 10 days. It is a really awful way to go, and you see people in utter terror for the, for the final days of their lives. What the virus does, because it of course has only got 10 days to pass itself on, or a very short period, a number of days, and this is true in animals as well, so what it does is it firstly prevents animals, including humans, from, from swallowing properly, so they're producing huge amounts of saliva, which is where the virus is, is, and then it changes the brain to make them highly aggressive. So in the case of dogs, they're actually biting anything which they can bite. So the brain, has manip the brain is manipulated by the infection to get itself passed on. This is part of its actual process for transmission. Again, rabies can be prevented entirely by vaccination. If you vaccinate all domestic dogs, that reduces the rates incredibly quickly. You can then uh, do bait baiting of wild things. For example, you could put, bait, you could put uh, vaccine onto the heads of chickens that are dead, obviously, uh, and leave them out. And wild foxes, for example, will take those uh, and uh, you can also, if people have got uh, a bite from an animal that might have rabies, you can vaccinate them after the bite, but before they get symptoms. And if you do it in the first few days, there is virtually 100% certainty you can prevent that infection. So the vaccine is both preventative of getting the infection and also can prevent people who have been infected from developing symptoms. And rabies has now dropped really quite substantially, except in the countries uh, in red that you say here. But this is something which, if you control rabies in dogs, rabies will go away. So this is, again, a vaccine-preventable disease. And here are just some examples. What happens is if you increase the vaccination in dogs, rabies in dogs goes down, and therefore rabies in humans goes down. It follows as night follows day. So vaccinating dogs against rabies, a very good thing to do. Some of the encephalitis you get in parts of the world is transmitted by particular insects. And I'm just going to give a few examples. There are actually quite many. The most common of those, the most important of them, is an encephalitis you get in Asia called Japanese bee encephalitis. It can cause no symptoms, but it can be very severe, up to just under 70,000 cases again, according to the latest estimates, is the commonest cause of encephalitis in Asia. So this is actually quite a common uh, infection, and it's passed on by mosquitoes, the reservoirs in pigs. So it, the, the cycle is, is pig and wildfowl to humans. Uh, 
But there are, again, fortunately, highly effective vaccines against this common uh, infection. Here, for example, is what happened in Taiwan. I put an arrow where the vaccine was introduced. This encephalitis basically almost entirely goes away. And then there are other mosquito, rarer mosquito encephalitides. I'm not going to go through them in detail, including some uh, like West Nile virus, uh, which we have in parts of Europe, not uh, currently in the UK. Another insect that can pass these on are ticks. And there is an important tick-borne encephalitis, which again uh, is particularly important in Eastern Europe and large parts of Asia. Just like with Japanese bee encephalitis, we have a highly effective vaccine. If you're vaccinated before you go into the area at risk, then the encephalitis is not going to happen. And other very specialised tick-borne encephalitides can happen elsewhere. I've just given an example from the USA. A tick-borne disease, which is a bacterial disease, is a rather strange what's called a spirochete bacterial disease, which a lot of people know about, including a lot of true information and a lot of misinformation, is Lyme disease. This is a tick-borne infection that can have a number of, of, of effects, but it can certainly cause inflammation of the brain. It's a bacteria. Uh, it's rare in most of the UK, but much more common in quite large parts of Europe. So, for example, in the UK, largely around, for example, the New Forest area, but in the, uh, the Black Forest area, many parts of Scandinavia, the rates of infection are considerably higher uh, and very significant rates uh, in parts of the eastern seaboard of the USA. Uh, Lyme, Connecticut is where this was first uh, described. It can be genuinely difficult to diagnose. But, and this is the bit where I think the misinformation comes in, antibiotics are highly effective at curing this infection at all stages in the great majority of people. I, I would not want to claim all, but the great majority of people. And control studies suggest that Lyme, if you get it, neuro-Lyme, actually has a very good outcome. So this is a very recent study that was done in a Danish population comparing uh, 2,000 people with Lyme disease, neuro-Lyme disease, uh, with people with 20,000 people in the general, general population. What it demonstrated was the uh, outcomes after they'd been treated were virtually the same, whether you're talking about hospitalisation, employment, income, disability, or schooling. In fact, the only area where there was a significant difference was in marriage, where people who had neuro-Lyme got married more often. Uh, but otherwise, uh, they were basically identical. Another spirochete disease, now much, much rarer, but it used to be a really serious problem, including here in London, uh, was neurological syphilis, also known as general paralysis, or uh, the rather grandly named general paralysis of the insane. If we'd gone back 100 years ago, uh, it was extremely common. So somewhere between 12 and 25% of all diagnoses in uh, the mental institutions of the day were neurosyphilis. This was very, very common indeed. And there was a royal commission at that stage, almost exactly 100 years ago, that estimated, and I think probably accurately, that around 10% of the adult male population in London at that stage had syphilis. So this was a common uh, infection. It happens usually, it occurs normally somewhere between 10 and 30 years after infection. So this doesn't happen initially, it happens later on. And what it leads to is people having very grandiose ideas. They think they're going to rule the world. They think they're going to win every lottery. They have huge ideas. Uh, personality change, going on to dementia, uh, and then eventually paralysis. Many famous people are thought to have had it. If you read any history book, you'll find lots of people uh, uh, who've actually been uh, ascribed as having it. We certainly know that some people, historically important, had it. For example, Al Capone uh, had a proven case of neurosyphilis. At the stage uh, when uh, Mr Capone was doing his, uh, his evil worst, uh, the best treatment for syphilis was actually to infect people with malaria. And the reason for that was malaria caused the fever to go up extremely high, and the fever killed the parasite, this killed the bacteria of the neurosyphilis. So using one infection to cure, to cure another infection. But the thing which transformed the outlook for neurosyphilis was the advent of penicillin. Penicillin is still highly effective against syphilis, and actually what in fact happens is most people who have early syphilis, because syphilis still exists, much lower levels, get treated without even knowing it when they're given antibiotics by their GP for, let's say, uh, a pneumonia or something else. So antibiotics between the first infection and the neurosyphilis will lead to people not going on to get this very serious late effect. 
So again, it's going away, but in this case, it's going away because of treatment. Finally, before I move off uh, meningoencephalitis, something which uh, is very rare, but every time it happens, it gets onto the front page of the newspapers uh, because it has uh, such a dramatic presentation. And this is amoebic uh, meningoencephalitis caused by this uh, bug, uh, Negleria fowleri. Uh, this rarely, these are very rare occasions, so 34 cases in the USA in 10 years. This is not a common uh, organism. Uh, not occurring here, but it enters the nose when people swim in warm, untreated fresh water. So this is not from swimming pools. This is swimming in uh, warm uh, lakes and ponds. But when it does happen, it's got an almost 100% mortality, uh, and it does literally eat the brain uh, on its way in. This is something which uh, obviously uh, is pretty unpleasant to have. But much more important parasites affect the brain. And I'll, I'm going to highlight three in particular, and then a few uh, because they're related to uh, animals that we are very, live very close to. The, first, the most important of them that affects the brain is malaria. Malaria still causes about over 200 million cases a year and causes over 400,000 deaths a year. Uh, and malaria, cerebral malaria... Is, which is the form that affects the brain, which leads to unconsciousness, fitting, and eventually, in many cases, to death, is one of the major causes of people dying of malaria. And the malaria parasites don't actually get into the brain, but they get in very high numbers into the blood vessels in the brain. The mechanism they actually kill people is not entirely clear, but they certainly are there in very, very high concentrations. Most people who die of cerebral malaria are children, and poor and live in Africa. But uh, every uh, couple of years, there will be deaths from cerebral malaria here in the UK, from people who caught it, uh, mainly in Africa, and import it to the UK. It's not transmissible to other people, but it's very potentially dangerous. But, important positive but, since two, the year 2000, so in the last 18 years, malaria mortality rates have fallen by 62% overall, and 69% in children under, under five, another area of massive public health success. And here it's not a vaccine that has helped us, but old-fashioned, very old-fashioned medicine. Bed nets treated with insecticides to stop mosquitoes biting, and two drugs, Artemisia annuus, wormwood, which has been around in Chinese traditional medicine for a 1,000 years at least, uh, and quinine imported from Latin America over 300 years ago by the Jesuits. And these, the combination of these old-fashioned techniques has led to this dramatic decline uh, in this uh, major uh, infection which affects the brain. And these uh, declines have occurred in every region of the world. Europe, where malaria is for practical purposes gone, uh, South Asia, uh, Africa, and Latin America. An astonishing positive story. Another insect-transmitted uh, brain infection, again a very unpleasant one, African sleeping sickness, was a very major cause of mortality, and it's passed on by this biting fly. A fly, if it bites you, you know about it, this, this one. And these uh, parasites uh, get into the brain. And there they gradually cause people's personality to change, and they become demented, and eventually uh, they die. And the reason it's called sleeping sickness is their sleep pattern inverts. They sleep during the day uh, and uh, are active during the night, like teenagers, but rather more seriously. <laughs> Just like malaria, there has been a substantial reduction in the number of cases due to, again, old-fashioned finding people and treating them. The drugs used to be incredibly toxic. They still are pretty toxic, but until 10, year, 10 to 15 years ago, the drug for treating sleeping sickness killed 5% of the people who gave it, just the drug. It was an arsenic-based drug. We've now got much safer drugs. Uh, diagnostics are slightly improved. Uh, but the other thing which has helped us is that, fortunately, uh, tsetse flies are unbelievably stupid. Uh, and they think that's a cow, <laughs> this thing on the right. And if you paint this blue canvas cow with an insecticide... Mosquito, the tsetse flies land on it, hoping to get a good blood meal, and that is the last thought they have. <laughs> Putting these two together has led to a situation. So if you historically, there were devastating epidemics of this infection. 
1995, the WHO estimated there were over 300,000 cases. That's not that long ago. By 2009, so that's just under 10 uh, years ago, uh, under 10,000 cases, and the last year for which we have data, 2017, under 2,000 cases. This parasite's not completely on, gone, but it's clearly, at this time, at least in, at this time, uh, on its way out due to these old-fashioned stop, kill the insects, treat the people. A disease that much le less commonly kills people but is also very important is this infection called cystosychosis. Cystosychosis is a parasitic disease of the brain, and these are the cysts from which the thing gets its name. It's actually a disease of pig tapeworms, and the pig tapeworm uh, is something which is passed on from human to pig, and what happens is the humans get the tapeworm, they then pass eggs in their stool, the pigs, uh, who are rather undiscriminating eaters, eat the uh, human faeces, and they then get infected, and that goes into their muscles with cysts, and then humans eat the uh, uncooked pork, and that gives them uh, the tapeworm. That's the normal cycle. But just but occasionally, humans eat the feces of other humans who've got infection. Don't think about it too much before supper. Uh, and they go on to get the cyst form, which is actually meant to be in the pigs. And it's those cysts which cause problems. It's a widespread problem. It's probably the commonest cause of epilepsy, adult onset epilepsy in the world. So this is not a trivial uh, problem. This is a map of where it is most common. And uh, in contrast to some of the other things we've talked about, the way of dealing with it has to be a multi-pronged approach. Improving sanitation so people get rid of their own faeces, they don't, it doesn't end up in the bellies of pigs or indeed their neighbours. Animal husbandry, keeping the pigs away from humans. Inspecting meat. And if you can't inspect it, cook it or freeze it. Both of those will kill it, kill them. And then finding humans with a tapeworm and treating them. Treat the pigs. And increasingly, we're going to rely, I think, in my view, on vaccinating the pigs as well. So this is an area where a pig vaccine will protect humans against a serious human disease. So I talked about uh, pigs. Um, maybe move on to another uh, animal much beloved of uh, particularly the Welsh and the Scots, uh, sheep. Uh, there is, again, at this case, a sheep-dog cycle. And again, humans in this case get infected accidentally. So the parasite thinks that we're a sheep. And what you then get is very large cysts, some of which can go into the brain. I'll talk about this more when I talk about the liver, because it goes into other places as well. So this is a situation where stopping uh, dogs eating recently deceased sheep uh, is a key part of the control measure. And finally, uh, as we've, as I've, uh, for those of you who are... Uh, dog lovers, I don't want to discriminate against you, so a cat parasite, uh, toxoplasmosis. This is another of those parasites that manipulates human, uh, animal behaviour. So this is a cat-mouse cycle. Cat uh, is infected, cat infects the, the mice or the rats, and the rats get it into their brains, uh, and they get it from, the rats get it from cat faeces. The interesting thing about this from a biological point of view, and rather depressing if you're a cat or a rat, sorry, rat or a, 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 a mouse, is that if this parasite gets into the brains of the rats and the mice, they start behaving incredibly recklessly. They stop noticing that cat urine is around, they start running into the middle of rooms, and of course, therefore, they're more likely to be caught. So this parasite, and there's very clear data from this from multiple sites. This parasite manipulates the behaviour of the rats and the, cat, uh, and the mice to make them more likely to be eaten. Getting into the brain changes the behaviour of the animals. Humans are widely infected, so somewhere between 25 and 35% 30, of the UK population uh, probably has these parasites in their brain. Just think about that when you look around your neighbours. Probably it does little harm but there is, a, there is a genuine debate about whether this infection, which is caught mainly from cat feces, actually does make humans behave a bit more recklessly as well. 
and those who think that people who are cat lovers are strange people uh, may uh, have their prejudices here uh, reinforced. Um, where it does cause very bad problems, and there's no doubt about this, is in people who've got HIV disease. And they can have very serious problems, uh, of which uh, the most important is fitting. So uh, the way to treat this, you can treat the, the parasite, but the key thing is to treat the HIV. If you treat the HIV, this goes back to being a relatively small problem. So a cat, a dog, uh, a sheep, and a pig. Finally, those are things where there's a cycle. Here's a situation where humans deliberately eat things, and I'm not going to go into these in any great detail. But uh, just to say to you, if you like exotic foods, great. Be aware that most exotic foods can pass on some parasites. So there are forms of parasites which, in particular, there are some worms, there are three worms in particular, which you can catch from eating undercooked exotic foods, uh, frogs, uh, snakes... Uh, and giant land snails are three classic examples. Swamp eels are a variety of others. I do not wish to be a killjoy and tell you not to eat snake. Just don't eat it rare. Uh, if you cook it, uh, the problem uh, goes away. So those are the parasites I want to talk about. Just a few uh, things I wanted to add on uh, at the end. A very rare problem, which is not a meningitis but is a bacterial problem, is abscesses of the brain. And abscesses of the brain come on from either local infections, often tooth infections or uh, sinus infections, much less common these days because of good dentistry and antibiotics, but uh, cases do, do occur. They can also occur in the immunosuppressed, of course, people who've got HIV in particular, and in people whose hearts uh, have got structural abnormalities, good infections can get onto them or can pass from left to right uh, in a way that you wouldn't normally expect and right to left as well, some situations. These behave actually very much like a brain tumour, and when people first present, doctors often think they are a brain tumour because what people have is headache, local, which are worse normally lying down, local effects uh, where the area of the brain that's affected starts to stop, stop working. So, for example, if there's a speech area that's affected, speech becomes uh, reduced, and then they start to fit. This is a kind of classic presentation you'd get uh, with a uh, tumour. They look like this on the scan when you do the scan, and a combination of antibiotics and uh, neurosurgery, which is not anywhere near as delicate as many people imagine, basically is taking a drill uh, and uh, putting the drill into the hole in the, uh, where the uh, bacteria are and uh, sucking out the abscess, as you would any other abscess. If you combine surgery in some cases and antibiotics, most of these can be treated, but they can leave significant neurological problems. Uh, I would encourage you, if you've got a bad abscess of your tooth, do go and see your dentist. Finally, two things where I think... Well, one thing where I think we're going in the wrong direction. I've talked so far about infections of the brain. Those are things which get into the surroundings of the brain, like meningitis, into the... Uh, structure of the brain like encephalitis and the parasitic infections I've talked about more recently. But actually, statistically, the most common way in which brain function is affected by infection these days is something called delirium. And delirium is something which occurs, can occur in any age, and some infections are particularly prone to causing it. Uh, severe typhoid, for example, uh, classically does this. But the big risk for this is in people as they grow older. And in older people, particularly over the age of 85, but it basically increases gradually over time, if you get what would otherwise be a trivial infection, it might be a urinary tract infection, it might be pneumonia, this can lead to the brain simply not functioning properly. We don't really understand the mechanism, but it is very, very common. Two in ten hospital patients may have delirium. Uh, over time. This is not a trivial uh, issue. And for those who've seen it, and many of you may have seen it in parents, grandparents, partners at various points, it is extraordinarily frightening. People have a personality change, it's usually very short-lived, with confusion, drowsiness, they may be aggressive, they may become uh, very different from their usual selves. As I say, it's not an infection of the brain, and usually, if infection is what's triggered it, other things can trigger delirium. But when infection triggers it, usually it can be treated with antibiotics. And this is just only going to go one way. Because this is a, a situation where older brains are affected by any infection, 
because we are going to have a significant increase in people who are over the age of 80, or in these maps here, over the age of 85, over the next period, the number of people who have this, unless we find a way of treating this, is steadily going to go up. That is just a uh, demographic fact. So if you compare where we are now, around 3,200 people over the age of 80, uh, by 2048, most of the people in this audience will hopefully be alive then, uh, there will be over 7,000. So this is going to increase, and it's incre it is not just going to increase everywhere. Here in London, because people come in when they're young and leave usually in their middle years after their second child, London will not have this as a major increasing problem, but other areas of the country where are getting a lot older a lot faster will. So if you're in North Norfolk, if you're in the West Country, there will be a lot of people in hospital uh, with delirium, and we need to think about that uh, now and start planning for it. And finally, at the other age of the age spectrum, this is a glass either half full or half empty. Infections are still one of the leading causes of acquired brain injury in children after childbirth. Others are trauma, stroke, lack of oxygen, tumours and drugs and toxins uh, in general. And for children in the UK, and this would be much higher in many developing countries, uh, meningitis occur still accounts for around 13% of children who will need serious neurorehabilitation and encephalitis around 5%. So glass half empty, this is still a serious problem, although the number of cases of meningitis is going to go down now we're getting proper vaccination in meningococcus. But glass half full the numbers are now relatively small and falling, so roughly 100 children a year. A tragedy for each of the families involved, but the numbers are, in absolute terms, relatively small. So, my summary would be that people are right to fear brain infections like meningitis and encephalitis. They are very dangerous, they kill large numbers of people who get them, and they can leave many people with significant neurological disability. But... If you look, I've gone through here, meningococcal meningitis, Hib meningitis, pneumococcal meningitis, HIV-associated meningitis, measles encephalitis, JAP-B encephalitis, rabies, malaria, sleeping sickness, and many parasites. These are all going down, in some cases, at remarkable rates. The outlook for brain infections is extremely, in my view, bright, with a few exceptions which I've highlighted. And for those who are part of the anti-vaccine movement, if any of them are still watching, can I just point out that all the ones that are asterisked, the reason for this is we have effective vaccines. So very good outlook. Very happy to take questions. Thank you very much.